Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And it is so good to be back. Uh, You've heard some things in the introduction uh, that relate to my coming here in 1975. I was here for nine months in law school. Lord changed direction of my life. It was here during those nine months that uh, before... uh, the first Sunday even, at church picnic, I met my future wife, Kathy, through the church picnic here. I was called to preach here, surrendered to ministry here, licensed to preach through this church, married in this church a year and a half later. And so perhaps there's never been a more nine-month significant period in my life than the nine months I was here in the mid-70s. And just so much I would love to say I could spend my entire time thanking you. Uh, bringing back memories. There are people in this room today I've known literally my whole life. Uh, there are people here who have ministered to me uh, in, in ways visible and online uh, for years and years and things that I just, I could never express the gratitude that is deserved by people in this room and by this church. And I just want to leave it at that because I could say thanks for so much. When you see a child angrily strike another child in an argument over a toy, what do you see? Do you see there a good-hearted child having a bad moment? Or do you see a child acting out of their true nature? When you see on television a man or a woman in an orange jumpsuit who's been charged with murder... Do you see someone, if, if guilty, as charged, a good person driven by bad circumstances to do something they uh, would admit was wrong? Or do you see someone who, if guilty, manifested something that's been smoldering there in their heart all their life? In other words, someone who this action doesn't really reflect what's there. It was a circumstantial thing in a moment of time and rage and anger. Or someone that, no, this is uh, really, they're acting out of their, their nature. Some people see everyone as basically good, but no one's perfect. Everyone does things that are wrong every once in a while, but basically they're good people. A minority probably see the world as filled with people who are primarily bad and yet do good things every once in a while to a greater or lesser degree than other people. I mean, after all, even Hitler was good to his dog, we are told. The Bible says that someday we will all stand before God and find out what he thinks. There will be a last judgment where we will give an account for everything we have done, everything we have said. And eternity in heaven or hell will be at stake. And it really won't matter what other people think. What God thinks is all that will matter. He is the one who's seen everything we've ever done, who's heard everything we ever said, who's known every motive of our hearts, who's known every thought even before we think it. And that will be How he will view us. So how will he decide? In his love and mercy, he has told us in advance what he thinks. We don't have to wait and wonder what he thinks. He has told us in advance. In Romans chapter 5, this is passage in the book of God we're looking at today. The apostle Paul has written here not so much about the last judgment, though the shadow of that day is hanging over the whole, the whole section. What I want us to see is eventually some terms that describe our natural condition and what is true about Christ in relation to that. So this is going to be in, in four parts. The first part I'm just calling some commentary for context. I'm going to read the passage of chapter one, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to come back and focus really on four, four verses within this section. But just for some context, begin in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since 
We have been justified by faith. That's what the previous chapter has been about. Therefore, in light of chapter 4, he says, since we in Christ have been justified by faith, declared righteous by God because of our faith in what God has done through Jesus Christ, because of that, we have peace with God. Again, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access to the presence of God, to heaven forever. That access is ours by faith in Christ and what he's done, not what we have done. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The glory of God that awaits us forever and ever, eyes like a flame of fire, a face of glory and beauty and indescribable A beauty for which there are no words, ineffable. And that awaits us. And we hope for that. And it's a solid hope. And so that causes us to rejoice now. And more than that, because of our hope and not just our hope in the future, we rejoice in our sufferings now. So the great day that's before us and the eternity that's before us, but even now we can rejoice even in things that aren't so great, even our sufferings. Why? Because we know that if we're in Christ, this kicks off a chain of things that only strengthens our assurance. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. If we're really in Christ, we endure through sufferings. We stay faithful when it's hard to be faithful. Sufferings tend to weed out those who aren't really in Christ. And so if we stay faithful through times when it's hard to be faithful, that this is endurance and that endurance produces character, Christ-like character. And this produces hope. In other words, if I stay faithful when others fall away, if I stay faithful when it's hard to stay faithful, and if this produces Christ-like qualities within me, I have hope I'm a real Christian. And I am going to heaven. It's not just something related to faith in the future, faith in what Christ has done. I'm seeing evidence in my own life that this is real. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts. So this hope that I have for the future, thats I won't be ashamed when the day finally comes. Further evidence of that is my present experience of the love of God poured out in my heart now. The love of God that gives me a, a love for God's people primarily. A preferential love. It's not just we got a lot in common. No, they're the people of God. They love the one I love. We have the same loves together. And my love for them is evidence of what I'm hoping for in the future. It's love that is evidence that what I have now is real. Four, while we were still weak. So now we come to a more objective doctrinal foundation. And we're moving away from some of the experiential evidences that, that give us hope and joy. For while we were still weak, we couldn't do what God required. At the right time, not a day before, not a day later, Christ died for the ungodly. There's a second description. We were weak. We were ungodly. And we'll see some descriptions later of what that's like. But for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. This is probably a morally upright person. Does his job, pays his taxes, good citizen, votes. One, hardly anybody's going to die for someone like that, right? Someone says the emperor in Rome is putting this man to death. People say, oh, that's a shame. He, he was a good neighbor, good employee, but nobody's going to think about dying in his place. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. So this is the person that when the word comes out, the emperor is going to put this person to death. Everyone says, oh, no, not him. He was the one who helped me when, when I didn't have a job. She was the one who was there when our baby died. And this is the one who, you know, is, is grieved when other people are grieved. And they're the first one there to help. And everyone says, oh, they're such a good person. Not this one. And someone might say, well, the emperor just says someone has to die. And this is the one they've chosen. You could take their place, you know. 
And someone might say, you know, they're a better person than I am. The world needs that person more than they need me. I will take their place. So someone might do that. But what's going to happen in most cases is, well, they're more important than I am. But you know, what about my own family when I die? If I take their place, what's going to happen to my family? And I think a great deal of them, but uh, I think more of them than anyone in the world, but I'm not going to die for them. Verse 8, but God, here's the turning point, but God shows his love for us, and while we were still not good, not righteous, we were ungodly. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, his death made us right with God. Much more, if we're right with God now, even though we still live in bodies that incline towards sin, we're not perfect in this world yet. If that's true that we're right with God now, much more we will be reconciled, we will be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. So now we're reconciled to God, and we're looking back to where we started in this chapter. We rejoice in all this, returning to our joy because of all this is true. So what I want to do now in the second movement of message, if you will, is focus on four terms in verses 6 through 10 that describe the condition of people from God's perspective. I began by saying, you, you see, the world is filled with people that are mostly good, who, who do a little bad stuff, more or less. Or do you see the world is filled with people who are really bad, but occasionally will do some good things? What does God think? Well, he tells us in four terms in this passage of the condition of all who have not experienced God's transforming power through Christ. And terms which is the way God sees everyone who has not yet come to Christ, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of whether they're young or old, whether they are religious or non-religious, whether the world considers them good people or not. What does God think? Four terms. Here's the first one in verse 6. He says we are weak. While we were still weak. Unable to do what we needed to do most. We needed to deal with our sin problem. We've broken the law of God. We needed to deal with that, and we're too weak to do anything about it. We couldn't make it right. We couldn't make ourselves right before God. We were too weak to fix it. We didn't have the power to do what God requires of us, to keep his law, to keep it perfectly. That's what he required. We couldn't do it. We couldn't stop sinning. We were too weak. We didn't have the power to stop sinning. We didn't have the power to make things right because God's standard is be holy for I am holy. But we couldn't stop being unholy. We couldn't stop sinning. And if we could stop, we couldn't fix what we'd done before. We were too weak to meet God's holy standards. And that means... And that's the heading I'm giving for this second part. We are worse than we think we are. We're worse than we think we are. First of all, we're weak. Second, the term is ungodly. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus died to bring people to God, and he didn't die for good people, it says. People could be good enough to go to heaven. Then Paul said in Galatians 2.21 that Christ died for no purpose. Have you ever thought about that? If you think that people are just generally good and God will grade on the curve and, you know, people can in one way or another be good enough that God will throw open the door and let them into heaven. If that were possible, Jesus would not have had to have died. Why would Jesus need to die is no purpose because we can get to heaven without him. Would you give your child to die for someone else if they were going to be okay without your child's death? Of course not. Jesus died for no purpose 
if we were able to make it to heaven on our own. But we were ungodly, it says. And these are the people he died for. He died for a purpose, to bring people not like God, to bring them to God, to bring ungodly people into heaven because God otherwise will not receive ungodly people into heaven. God doesn't bring ungodly people into heaven, and that's the term he uses to describe us ungodly. And Jesus came for the ungodly. That's what we all were before Christ. That's what we all are if we haven't come to Christ. As Titus 3, verse 3 puts it, even speaking to people who had come to Christ, he says, before that, though, you were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And there are all sorts of lists of descriptions like that in the Bible demonstrating that outside of Christ, God says, we're not like him. We are ungodly. That rests rather heavy. That's why I say we're worse than we think we are. We don't like to think of ourselves as being ungodly. We're worse than we think we are. The third term is in verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul just used an illustration there how maybe occasionally somebody might die for a very, very good, very important person. But Jesus died, it says, for sinners, for people who deserve their punishment. Sinners are people who have sinned. They've broken the law of God. And the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus said, you ever been angry at anybody? Well, then you've broken the heart of the commandment that says you shall not murder. You ever lusted? Well, Jesus said, you have broken the heart of the commandment. You shall not commit adultery. You've broken the law of God. You're a sinner. And that the judgment, God won't grade on the curve, saying, well, this person was less angry than this person, so I'll let this one in. This person lusted less than this one, so I'll let this one in. None of that. The Bible says, James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law, the whole Bible, but fails in one point, has become accountable for it all. In other words, to try to Earn your way to heaven by living the good life is like trying to climb to heaven on a long chain. And you mess up one time, you sin one time, you break one link of that chain, the whole thing falls on you with it. You have to be perfect. Of course, we haven't. We have sinned. For some, it's hard to admit I am a sinner. But that's what God says. We're worse than we think we are. And fourth, it uses the term enemies in verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Now, this is the limit for some. Okay, yes, I have had bad thoughts about people. I have gotten angry at people. And, yeah, some of these things could be true sometimes. But now an enemy of God, I don't hate God. I'm not his enemy enemy, but the Bible says until we come to Christ, we actually are his enemies. We've made ourselves his enemies. We don't want him to rule over us or our bodies or our own will to live our own lives. We'll do. Thank you very much. And we would rather do anything than what God wants us to do. That's why we break his law. We sin against him. We have made ourselves his enemy. We are worse than we think we are. Now, this is all a description of our natural condition, the way we come into the world. Apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, even though we're made in the image of God, we've disfigured that image by what the Bible calls sin 
And we've turned ourselves into something ungodly, unlike God. All this is summarized in a theological term called depravity. Depravity. The Bible's doctrine of depravity doesn't teach us that we're worthless, that we can do no good. But it does teach us we're not worthy of living in the perfect world. The perfect world is coming in heaven. We can't do enough to impress God to let us into heaven. You know, it's just in the sixth chapter of the Bible that that early on, God announces his evaluation of what we are without him. Just the sixth chapter, he looks down. Chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So this is like the 30,000-foot view. Well, most of us can agree with this. Yeah, wickedness of man is great on earth, no doubt about that. But then he comes down the micro view, down into each of our hearts. And he also saw that every intention of the thoughts of the heart We're only evil continually. Wickedness of man is great on the earth. Yeah, things are really bad. Yeah, a lot of wickedness out there. But as he zoomed in on your heart and my heart, he looked at the intention of the thoughts of the heart. So he didn't just look into our hearts. He looks into what we're conscious of feeling, but even the thoughts of our hearts and behind that to the intention of the thoughts of the hearts. Because sometimes our thoughts can even fool ourselves. But he looked into the intention behind the thoughts of our hearts and he said they're only evil. Not mixed, not some good, but only evil and not part of the time continually. That's a lot to swallow, isn't it? That's why I say we are worse than we think we are. Apart from revelation like this, I don't think anyone would say of themselves, this describes them. But i got to remind you, God wrote this. This is from his perspective and from the way he sees us, this is what we are. Friends, we are worse than we think we are. There's good news coming, but so far, it's really bad. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 64, verse 6, that Genesis flood didn't wash away the sins that God looked down upon in Genesis 6. Thousands of years later, he wrote through the prophet Isaiah, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are as a polluted garment. All right, yeah, I don't always do things right. I have bad thoughts. I get angry at people. So I've got some problems. Um, But I do some righteous deeds. I'm not as bad as it says there in Genesis because I can tell you, I help people here. I do this. I volunteer at that. I give money here. I serve here. People are grateful for me. People love me. A lot of people like me. I I do some good. Okay, offer that to God because God inspired Isaiah to say our righteous deeds. We know what our wicked deeds are like. Okay, we admit we sin, but the Bible says here our righteous deeds are as a polluted garment. You know what the Hebrew for that is? And I'm not kidding. It's a dirty diaper. It's like taking a dirty diaper, turning that inside out, and offering that to God. And that is not the way our sins look to God. The Bible says all our righteousnesses. Some of you will know it by that term. Our righteousnesses are individual acts of righteousness. When you choose and say, okay, this is righteousness, this is unrighteousness, and I choose righteousness, good. That's what you ought to do. In some sense, God is pleased with that choice. In those moments when you say, 
All right, this is obedience to God. This is disobedience. I'm tempted. I'm tempted, but I'm going to do obedience. Good. That's the right choice. In some sense, God is pleased with that. But the Bible says in terms of impressing God for entrance into heaven, to hold up your best deeds is like offering him a dirty diaper and saying, will this get me into heaven? We're worse than we think we are. The Bible repeats three times, first by David, then Isaiah, then the apostle Paul. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, not really. No one seeks for God, not like he's revealed in Scripture. No one reveals God as he's revealed himself. No one seeks God as he's revealed himself. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The Apostle Paul said of himself in Romans 7, 16, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And then in the last chapter, last letter he wrote in first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter, uh, I'm sorry, near the end, 1 Timothy, next to the last thing he wrote, 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom, here's the phrase you know, I am chief or I am the foremost. In other words, Paul said at the time he is arguably the godliest man who's ever walked on this planet near the end of his life, the apostle Paul said of himself, I'm the biggest sinner in the world. He didn't say that for effect. He really meant it. And perhaps as he's dictating this to his scribe there, he's beating his breast. I am the biggest sinner in the world. Christ came to save sinners, and I'm the foremost. And you think, now, come on, Paul. No, it wasn't for effect. You know how he could say that? He would look over his life and say, I have been blessed with experiences with God Unlike anyone in the world, I have been, I've been taken to heaven. I, I got to see the glimpse heaven. Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus. He appeared to me other times. Angels have appeared to me. Miracles have come coursing through these very hands. And despite all of these unparalleled blessings, unlike anyone has ever really known, I still sin. And when I do, often I know exactly what I'm doing, and I'm willfully sinning. How could I choose to sin again and again and again after all I've seen all of my experience I've got to be the worst sinner in the world he really believed himself to be the worst sinner in the world I once heard Dallas Seminary professor John Hanna say that the closer one gets to Christ in one sense the more miserable he becomes because the more you get the closer you get to the holiness of Christ, the more unholy you realize you are. Like the, the shirt, you know, in the closet with the 60-watt light bulb. Well, it looks pretty clean. And you get out into the sunlight, and you think, oh, my goodness, this thing's filthy. Compared to our own standards, compared to others, we look pretty clean. But when we get closer and closer to the light of Christ, we realize we are worse than we think we are. Jonathan Edwards, when edition Encyclopedia Britannica called him the greatest mind America's ever produced. The man who led his church through perhaps what is the greatest spiritual awakening in our country's history. In his personal narrative, wrote one of his most famous sections about how he came to see the depth of what he was apart from God's grace. In and of himself, he says, My wickedness, as I am in myself, has long appeared to me perfectly ineffable. Ineffable means there are no words to describe it. <clears throat> and infinitely swallowing up all thought and imagination, like an infinite deluge or infinite mountains over my head, I know not how to express better what my sins appear to me to be than by heaping infinite upon infinite. What's infinite? You know, no limit, no number. Infinite upon infinite and multiplying infinite by infinite. When I look into my heart, and take a view of my wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell. And it appears to me that were it not for free grace, exalted and raised up to the infinite height of all the fullness and glory of the great Jehovah and the arm of his power and grace stretched forth in all his majesty and the glory of his sovereignty, I should appear sunk down 
in my sins, infinitely below hell itself. Far beyond sight of everything but the piercing eye of God's grace that can pierce even down to such a depth and to the bottom of such an abyss. My goodness. Famous phrase, though, my sins, as he looked at himself like, like Paul, the greatest son in the world. Edward said, my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. How is this possible? Read, he was a pretty good guy, you know. He said, first of all, I never do any, I never go one second without sin. Not one second. I mean, theoretically, if you can go one second, you can go two, right? If you can go two, you can go ten. If you can go ten seconds, you can go a minute. If you can go a minute, you can go five minutes, and you end up with sinless perfectionism. But Edwards knew we can't go a second without sin, that we never do anything perfectly, purely. Even our righteousness, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. So my best deeds, my best motives are tinged to some degree at least with selfishness, with sin, even if I'm not aware of it. These are my best deeds. But then what is the greatest of all commandments is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, right? That's the greatest of all commandments. And if I'm not loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I'm sinning. Well, when am I not loving him with all my heart, soul, and strength? It's when I'm sinning. When am I sinning? Every second. So every second of my life, I'm breaking the greatest of all commandments. It's infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite and as he begins to work out the biblical logic of what the text reveals, he says, my goodness, I am so much worse than I think I am. And, and, and the capstone of this, I'm, I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 28, verses 52 to 55. God is telling Israel that if they forsake him, when you come into the land, if you forsake him, and he knows they're going to do that, then their enemies are going to come, besiege them, and suffering would be so great, they would turn, and I'm going to try to be discreet here, but they're going to turn to cannibalism. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land in which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters. And the most tender and refined among you says, we'll do this. And you know what? On more than one occasion, this is exactly what they did. You might say, well, I know one thing. I could never do that. If you had gone to any of these people on these occasions in Israel's history in advance of the siege and say, you think you could ever do that? It said, there is no possible way. Do you think they love their children more than we love our children? Throughout history, we've seen if people get hungry enough, they will put their own survival above anyone else's. If people get angry enough, they will murder. If they get tempted enough beyond a certain point or get pressured enough beyond a certain point or get desperate enough, they will do things under normal conditions they would say they would never do. And each of us will say, you know, I just I didn't get enough sleep, so I snapped at somebody. I got this happened. I was under a lot of pressure. I snapped. Well, folks, what if that kind of pressure is only a thousandth of the kind of pressure you might receive under other circumstances. We will do things, have them squeezed out of us. We would think utterly impossible, but we are worse than we think we are. There are circumstances we've not encountered, conditions we've not yet envisioned, pressures we've not yet known, degrees of temptations we've not yet felt, depths of anger or hunger or hopelessness or pain we've never experienced that would result in us doing things we would say, I'll never do that. Folks, the bad news is we are worse than we think we are. But then in our text comes the great adversative. Adversative is a grammatical term, which according to the dictionary, quote, expresses opposition or antithesis. The Greek word here, very little short four-letter word, Allah, means on the other hand. And we translate that little four-letter word into a little three-letter word in English, but. 
We are worse than we think we are. We need to let that settle in. But God. That's my next point. The great adversative, but God. See it there at the beginning of verse 8. Romans 5, verse 8, but God. At the bottom of human depravity, even at the lowest point of human sin, when our spiritual condition could not be worse, when we could do nothing to help ourselves, when we could do nothing but despair, but God. Now the focus changes from our weakness to God's power, from our ungodliness to God himself, from our sin to God's salvation, from our enmity to God's love. And praise God, it has always been this way. At the worst, but God. The whole world was covered with water. Noah and his small family are in the ark. What possible hope is there? There's nothing but water out there. The whole world. What could they do? Where can you go? It's hopeless. But God, Genesis 8, 1 says, remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. King David is on the run, hiding one place after another in the wilderness. 1 Samuel 23, 14 says, And Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. Psalm 73, you'll read the words of Asaph there, expressing some of the deepest discouragement found in the Bible. But in verse 26, he affirms, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength, the strength of my heart, and my portion forever. In Acts 7, verse 9, Stephen is recounting the history of Israel and writes that the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Man, what a hopeless situation. Here you are, you are sold into slavery, and in a foreign land, you're all alone, no one knows you, no one cares, you're unjustly put in a horrible prison, And there's no one who can help him. There's no one who cares. Then Stephen adds, but God was with him. But God. And that changed everything. In Acts 10, verse 39 and 40, Peter is preaching to Cornelius and other Gentiles for the first time. And he says of Jesus, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Well, that's it. He's dead. But God raised him up again. And then Acts 13, verses 28 and 30, Paul is preaching and says of Jesus, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. Boom. The rock is over the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. The most famous, perhaps, but God passage, one I want you to see, keep your place in Romans chapter 5, but is in Ephesians chapter 2. We are worse than we think we are, but God. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And notice how it just goes down, down, down. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Down. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, down. Following the prince of the power of the air, down. And the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, down. Among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, down. Carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humanity, down to the very bottom. Verse 4. But God. And in those two words is the great hinge of history. Now, at the bottom of depravity is the light of divinity.
and we start coming up. But God, being rich in mercy, up because of the great love with which he loved us, up. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, up. Made us alive together with Christ, up. By grace you have been saved, up. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, up. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are worse than we think we are. Way worse than we can imagine ourselves being. But God. All our hope is in those two little words. Knowing everything about us, every sin we would ever commit knowing sins that we're not even aware of ourselves, knowing sins that we've not committed but would have committed if given the opportunity or the pressure, knowing all of that, but God, we're told back in Romans 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We are worse than we think we are, but God. And now my last point, but Jesus is better than we think he is. Jesus is better than we think he is. Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5 says. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, it says. We have now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We're worse, oh, weak, Ungodly, sinners, but God. The Apostle John tells us this about Jesus in John 5, verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is 1 John. Rather, 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus is better than we think he is because Jesus is life. Life for the weak. Life for the ungodly. Life for the sinner. Life for the enemies of God. And everywhere Jesus went, life flowed from him. So much so that as the crowds thronged around him, they did so just to touch him. I've done a study recently about the crowds. Kind of pay attention for those references when you read the Gospels, things about the crowds. It's it's unbelievable. We're told that so often that, uh, like what we see in Mark 6.53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities... Or countryside. So the wide open spaces, there are places that say the crowds are so great they couldn't funnel through the streets anymore. They just had to go en masse, you know, across the open fields. Whether it was open fields, small villages, or cities, this is what happened. Everywhere they laid the sick in the marketplaces, implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Why? Because they were touching life. They were touching life. You can imagine how primitive the medical conditions were in those days. If you got sick, there was very little help available to you. And then, they hear about this Galilean man. He can heal anybody. He can heal anything. He can create new limbs. He can even raise the dead. So people came from everywhere to touch him. You would too, right? And you, if you had a sick baby and you hear about this, you would walk over the top of your best friend to get that baby to Jesus, wouldn't you? And everybody's doing this. And because there's very little medical help in those days, almost everybody is sick or has some problem, congenital problem, or something that's happened to them. So almost everyone was pressing in on Jesus with all that they could. We saw a great tragedy of something like this in in South Korea just a few days ago as people just trampled one another like that. And there's actually a verse that says the crowds were so great they were trampling one another. It was that kind of thing, people pressing, pressing. Here's my one chance to get healed, my one chance for my baby to be healed. Pressing, always pressing, forward, forward, day and night. I don't think we appreciate the pressure that was on Jesus. 
And if you could have seen with a drone camera, seen this crowd from above, I mean, it would have been this enormous mass almost looking like a beehive. And Jesus like the queen bee at the middle, everybody pressing, pressing, pressing forward. There are times it says that Jesus came into the lake and they were going to push him into the lake. And he had to get a boat and get out a little bit from the lake or people in the back would just kept pressing, pressing, pressing. And they would have all been pressed into the water. In Luke 8, 45, after the woman with a discharge of blood came up in the crowd, you know, and touched the hem of his garment. <laughs> this is so funny to me. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who, who touched my garments? And I think this is intended to convey some of that humor. The disciples, and we're told in another gospel, it's Peter, said, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? I bet he wanted to say, everybody's touching you. What do you mean? You know, we, we sometimes think of the disciples that always, you know, sitting and listening to Jesus and pondering what he was talking about. That was mainly what they did. You know what I think the disciples' main job was most of the time? Crowd control. Really, I think most of the time, get, get back. Let the man through. Let the man through. As people are pushing, pushing. No, no, let him through. Get, quit. I think that's the way it was most of the time. Why? Why would they do it? Because they were touching life. Just touch his garment and life came out of him. Jesus could have walked through a desert and like a wave of life, just like the wake end of a motorboat behind him, could have, the desert could have just blossomed into life because he was life. Now, we have no record of anything like that, but we do have prophecies of how he could make the desert bloom. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2 says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And whenever Jesus passed through the desert of humanity, that's what did happen. Withered hands were restored like blossoms, trees. Dry, dead eyes moistened and bloomed into sight. Stiff, paralyzed quadriplegics blossomed into full strength. Skin desiccated by leprosy blossomed into full health in the desert of death Corpses blossomed into life at his touch. And even more important, spiritually, that is exactly what happened whenever Jesus went anywhere. Those who were dead spiritually blossomed into eternal life. And they all rejoiced like the prophet said the desert would. But he could have done that just literally as he walked through the deserts. Just like a wake of a motorboat. Just a garden blossoms behind him. Why couldn't he do that? He made it anyway. He's life. Jesus is life. And speaking of the Holy Spirit that he would give to those united by faith, he said rivers of living water would flow into and out of our hearts, John 7. We are worse than we think we are, but Jesus is better than we think he is. I invite you to respond to this message in three ways. And the most important is, in this one, is this one, to respond by believing. Believing that it's all true. If you've never come to Christ, believe that you are weak, that you are ungodly, that you're a sinner, that you're an enemy. It is good for you to believe this. It is good for you to believe this. Because God says you're worse than you think you are. And when you believe that to be true, it helps you finally give up the impossibility of being good enough to impress God. There's no hope for that. It's good to believe you need Jesus and believing that you are weak and can't do what God wants. You are ungodly. You're a sinner. You're an enemy of God. It's good to come to that realization because you believe you need Jesus. 
Joseph's heart, Joseph Hart's classic hymn, 1759, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. Some of you remember that? There's this great line, let not conscience make you linger. You know, I, I'm too bad. I, I'm worse than I think I am. I'm too bad to come. No, he says, nor a fitness fondly dream. On the other hand, don't think you're fit. You're good enough. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Don't think you're good enough and don't need Jesus. Don't think you're not good enough to come. You've got to fix yourself before you come. The only fitness he requires of you is for you to feel your need of him, to know you're weak, you're a sinner, you're ungodly, you're an enemy. That's all he requires. So believe that it's true that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Believe that he died for ungodly ones like you and me. Believe that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us for sinners like you. Believe that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, even enemies like you. Second, I call you to respond by rejoicing. Rejoicing because it's all true. As verse 2 says, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Before long, believer, we will look into his face, those eyes like a flame of fire, Peter, uh, 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 John said when he saw them. Uh, a fire of endlessly an endless variety of beauty. Indescribable. Beyond our wildest imagination. You and I have no capacity to understand how glorious heaven is and how happy you will be there. You have no capacity. And I think the Bible gives us so little about heaven because to try to describe it would be like describing algebra to an ant. We have no capacity to get it. And third, respond by praying. Praying a but God prayer. Where in your life is it the most hopeless? Where are you the most helpless, the most discouraged? Remember verse 8, but God. But God. We're worse than we think we are, yet there is this. But God. And Jesus is way better than we think he is. And we're about to sing a hymn that says, Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.